You're listening to the audio sermon podcast of First Baptist Church of Marble Falls, Texas. For almost 130 years, FBCMF has served Marble Falls and the greater Highland Lakes area faithfully through children's programs, youth activities, and adult discipleship. We invite you to join us each and every Sunday morning at 9 and 10.30 a.m. for deep fellowship, rich worship, and a spirit-filled message. For those who find themselves unable to attend on a Sunday morning, we stream those services. Simply visit fbcmf.live during either of our service times to view it. Never miss an archived sermon by subscribing to our podcast on either SoundCloud or iTunes. And to learn more about our church or watch a video version of this and other sermons, please visit us online at fbcmf.org. When we left off last week, we were in Psalm 137, and we were in exile, and it was dark, and it's miserable, and um, it's a difficult place. The, the poet who wrote Psalm 137 talks about how hard it was. And, and he says this, by the rivers of Babylon, we just sat down and we just started weeping. We hung our harps on the tree and, and, and we walked away. And, and our captors tormented us saying, sing for us the songs of Zion. But how can we sing songs of Zion when we're in a foreign land, when things are not going well? How do we sing? But May we never forget the songs of Zion, though. And if we do forget, may the tongues of our mouth be glued to the roof of our mouth, and may our hands forget its ability to play anymore. But Lord, we we ask you that you do remember, just as you have brought punishment upon us, that you also remember the Edomites and what they did to us. And Lord, the Babylonians, who actually did all of this destruction, remember them too, Father, for what they have done. And may whatever nation that rises up and destroys the Babylonians and takes their children and beats them against the rocks, Lord, may that nation be blessed. And then it ends. And we're just left in this very dark, very difficult kind of place. Remember this, that Psalm 137 is a psalm of disorientation, and the only thing that held them together was, one, not forgetting God. They couldn't worship. They didn't feel like worshiping. They didn't have the strength to worship. But they did not forget God. And, and, and the second thing is they held on to hope that one day all of it would be over. And that's why they said, may our tongues not forget how to sing and may our hands not forget how to play because one day we're going to want to play again. We're going to want to sing again. And so there is hope in the one day. One of the hardest things about being in a season of exile is that it seems to go on and on when you're in it. I hate that. I hate it that good times go way too fast. And, and difficult times seems like time barely, barely creeps by. But after 70 years of exile, finally the Lord moved and he spoke and suddenly it ended and the long night of exile was over and God broke the new dawn of day and the sun came out again. And here is how God achieved it. Uh, The Babylonians had been ruling that known world for for a long time, but God rose up a new nation, the Persian Empire. And the king of Persia was um, Cyrus the Great. And the last stronghold that Cyrus needed to, um, to defeat were the Babylonians in order to rule everything. And there was a great battle in the year 532 BC, and it was called the Battle of Opus. And at the battle, the Persians came in with Cyrus the Great leading them, and they defeated the Babylonians. And now the people who had, who had exiled 
the Jewish people and, 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 and destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. The Babylonians were now defeated and the Persians were ruling. In the first act that, that, that Cyrus the, the Great, the king of Persia gave in his first year was he got all of the Israelite people that had been exiled and put in Babylon and he let all of them go all the way back home. He set them free. And here's what the Bible says about that moment in Ezra chapter one. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the, that the Lord had spoken to Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. And this is a big deal. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem, in Judah. And so now the people who are in, in, in stuck in exile, they're like, that sounds good to us. Rebuilding our temple? Come on, king, what else do you have? And the king says, and any of his people, and they're saying, that's us, among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. Does that mean we're free? We're free, he's setting us free? That's what it sounds like. And then he said this, and any, in any locality where survivors may now be living, the people in that area are to provide them with silver and gold and goods and livestock and free will offerings for the temple of God. So not only were they set free, but the people in that area gave them um, a, a means in which to rebuild their life, to rebuild the temple, to start over fresh and new. So they go from being exiled to, to now being free. Welcome to the other side. The other side of difficulty, the other side of trial, on the other side of disorientation is the situation that, that we call new orientation. And new orientation is different. Y'all, it doesn't mean that you're going back. New orientation is not like old orientation. You can never go back. After disorientation, you can never go back and experience life the way that you had once experienced it because exiles changed you. The darkness has changed you, you've been broken. You've gained insight, you've gained wisdom. It was hard, it was hard in such a way that, that now you're a very, very different person. The tragedy, the chaos, uh, the, the crisis is not putting you back down in the same place where it found you. The, the tears that you cried had an ability to, to, to make you be able to see a little bit more clearly. Tears cleaned out your eyes and now you see your life and you see the entire world very, very differently. That's what tears do sometimes. Tears clean our eyes out so that we can see things more clearly. The pain of disorientation is, is like a refining process where, where things that God doesn't want in our life, he uses it and he moves things out so that we can be used. And, and all of a sudden, through that disorientation, everything just changed. God liberated them and they were, they were set free. Can y'all imagine what it was, must have been like to journey home with friends and, and uh, some family that, that you had there in Babylonian exile and you had always told your children, children were born in captivity. And you told them about Zion, you told them about home in Jerusalem, but they had never seen it. And, and, and in your mind, 
you may have thought, we're never going to see it again. And so as you share all of those memories with children, you, you, you think it's, it's not going to be the same for them. And then you get a shot to go back home. What, what was the journey like with, with free men and free women getting ready to go back home? I, I imagine that when the proclamation first came out, um, that, that they hardly could even believe it. They thought it was fake news. And somebody says, um, they, they go to their neighbors and they go to other people around and family and they say, is it true? Is it true that Cyrus the Great has released us? We get to go back home? Did you hear the same thing? I heard the same thing. Did you hear it? Did y'all hear it? Who all heard it? I heard it too. It must be true. How do we verify it? How do we validate it? Find out who? They find the, the people who are Persians and they say, is this true? And they said, yes, go home. You are free. You, you, you can leave. And, and people who are working in the middle of the day, I can picture the farmer, the man he's out, and he's, he's reaping the harvest, and, and, and somebody yells to him, his friend, and he says, we're free. We can go back home. And he drops all of his equipment, and he starts going. He yells at the boss, you know, I'm out of here. And the boss says, if you leave right now, I'm telling you, you're, you're, you're fired. And he doesn't even turn around. He doesn't even say it. He's gone, man. Take this job and, you know, the country song. <laughs> we're out of here. We're gone, man. And, 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 and it, there's such joy. He, he goes home and, and, and they start packing everything up. And as they pack their stuff, they just start laughing. Can you believe it? We're, we're going back home and they, they're packing it and they get in their suitcases and their wagons and they're loading it up and, and their neighbors are doing the same thing and these are, people are doing the same thing and they're waving at their friends and they're just laughing and they're incredibly filled with joy because that's what new orientation does. It restores to you everything that was lost. And so in this moment, they, 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 they thought it was almost a dream. Uh, this past week, Megan and I watched a documentary about Vietnam and it was about the men of Charlie Company and the Army's 9th Division. And they were unique because they were recruited together and they were trained together and then they all went and they fought together as well. And, and um, there were about 160 of them that went, but only 40 of them returned home. They said that when they got on the plane though, about those 40 men, they got on the plane to return home and all of them were saying this, we couldn't believe it. It felt like a dream. We couldn't believe that we were coming home after a whole year of fighting in Vietnam. They said it felt like a dream. When God miraculously liberated Peter from his captivity in Acts chapter 12, do you remember what it said when Peter was walking out? He said, it felt like a dream. God was leading me somehow. God had liberated me. I don't know how it happened, but it felt like a dream. I'm not surprised that the poet describes it like this. I'm not surprised that he does. He says, we were like men who dreamed dreams. There are some events that happen in our lives that are so special and that they're, they're, they're so unique that it's almost unbelievable that it's happening to you at the time. I, I remember when I married Megan and, and I tried so hard to, to be in the moment but it felt almost as if it were a dream. Is, is she really marrying me? Is it really happening? Will I wake up tomorrow and she's going to be there? Is this really? It was 
marrying her was unbelievable for, for me. When I walked the stage at Truett, and I graduated with my doctorate the, 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 back in May, the, the decorum when you graduate, especially at, at that place, is you, you're very dignified. And you walk up and you just shake hands and you turn and you take a picture and you shake hands. There are several people up there. I hugged every one of them on the stage. <laughs> you know, I lost all decorum. I, I, I didn't even know. I tried to be in the moment. I tried, I tried to, to, to be there, but it was surreal. It was unbelievable. I, it, it felt like I was just floating through. It, it felt like a dream. I'm not surprised that the people of Israel explained it and felt it like this, no, not at all. But maybe there's another aspect to it. Maybe the idea of I, we were like men who dreamed dreams, maybe it was that they felt so you know, wonderful about it that it was unbelievable, but maybe he didn't mean that at all. Perhaps when he said that I, we were like men who dreamed dreams, more it meant this. Maybe it was like, the first time in seven decades do we have a vision for our life again. We have dreams for our life. We, we, we had forgotten about our children's future and grandchildren's future. We didn't have any dreams for tomorrow, and now all of those dreams are back again, and we're excited about it. I, I wonder if that's what he meant, that dream what he is meaning that dream as in the word vision. We had a vision for our lives. We were like men when we were released. Now we have vision. And we lost it. The Bible says that without a vision, the people will perish. And, and they had lost all vision in exile. And, and they were perishing, no doubt. But now that they're free again, it's like we have vision again in dreams. Uh, the, the song, the first song in the movie, The Greatest Showman, uh, he sings the song called A Million Dreams. And so some of you have seen the show. It's such a good movie. But he says in it, um, in, in the song, I close my eyes and I can see a whole world that's waiting up for me. And, and then he gets to the chorus. And he says, every night I lie in bed and the brightest colors fill my head. A million dreams are keeping me awake. I wonder if they felt like that that they get to go back home and they can't even sleep and, and their eyes are wide open in a million dreams of what their new life is going to be like. And the song goes on and he says, I think of what the world could be, a vision of the one I see, a million dreams is all it's going to take. I wonder if they felt that, a million dreams coming to them. And, and dream one, now they picture their children and their children growing up, and then somebody says, children growing up? Do you know what that means? Grandchildren. That's what it means. And then somebody over here says, ah, oh, I almost forgot about grandchildren. And he says, the first thing that I get home is I'm going to build a swing for my grandchildren. And somebody says, you don't even have grandchildren yet. And he goes, I'm building them a swing anyway. <laughs> I, I, I'm go I picture them, and I'm pulling them in a wagon. 
And, and, and I'm picturing them, and, and my dreams are that they're walking beside me, and I just have two little fingers like this, and their whole hand is wrapped around my two little fingers. It's my dream. And finally, for the first time in all of my life, it seems, I have a dream for the next generation and for the future and our family and what life is going to be like. When we returned from Zion, we were like men who dreamed dreams. Don't you reckon? I see it. And they picture home. Ah, oh, children, you should have seen home when we were there. Let me tell you about home. And they dreamed about it. You remember the old country song in the 90s? It says home. I think it was by a, a, an artist named Joe Diffie. And he said that home was a swimming hole and a fishing hole and the feel of a muddy robe beneath my toes. Home was a back porch swing where I would sit and mom would sing Amazing Grace as she hung out the clothes. Home was an easy chair with my daddy there and the smell of a Sunday supper on the stove. Home. Oh, if you could just, if you could have seen it. Kids, you should have been able to see us when we were home and what Jerusalem was like and what the, what it was like when we all came together for our great celebrations and feasts. Oh, you should have seen it. And then Cyrus the Great says, go back home. And all the dreams come flooding back to them. Imagine it, imagine. If you thought you would never, ever see any of that ever again. And then the shocking moment when God intervenes and he says, your penalty is up, your consequences are finished. You've paid them above and beyond. The exile is done. It's time for you to come back home. And their minds immediately begin bursting at the seams with dreams. I, I've begun to notice in my life that I, I, I'm not omni-creative. In fact, I, nobody is omni-creative. Steve Jobs was not omni-creative. Here's how creativity works in our life. It, it works in cycles where we have a season of our life that, that we're highly creative, and then we move to another stage, and then another stage, and then another stage. And, and it, this rhythm of creativity makes sense because we live in a nature that is very rhythmic and very cyclical, and so it makes sense that this is a part of us as well. And the stages go kind of like this, and if you, if you do read much about um, creativity and stages of creativity, this is the way that they explain it, that there are four stages that we go through in a creative process. The first stage is the dream stage, where, where our mind is fertile and we're, we're able to connect ideas with each other, and we see opportunities where it's hard to see opportunities, but we notice it when we're in this stage. And, and then we move on to the next stage, and, and this is the implementation of the dream, where we start making it happen, and we begin the work, and it's exciting work, and it's hard, and this stage is called the progress stage, where you start to make progress to help the dream come true, and, uh, and it's hard, it's labor-intensive, but it's always exciting, this stage too, because it's new, and you're making the dream happen, and, and, and even though it's real difficult, it's kind of an exciting difficulty. But then you keep at it, and you keep at it, and finally you move on to a third stage, and the third stage is called the doldrum stage. The doldrum stage isn't much fun. It's, it's when you set out to do the hard thing, and you come to the moment, and then you're tempted to give it up. 
and you don't want to continue anymore at all. Uh, it's kind of a valuable stage, though, because if you stick with it, you can produce great things, but, but you don't feel like sticking with it. In fact, you want to escape. This is the stage where, where somebody says, you know what, it was a stupid idea anyway. It, this is the stage where you start to blame other people around you, and, and you say, why didn't you stop me? That, that was a bad idea. I told you about it, and you didn't stop me. What, what's wrong? This is where that stage comes in. This is the moment where you would rather reverse the cycle and go back to stage one and say, let's dream up some new dreams. But if you do, if you do know this, there is no real escaping it. And you can go back and you can start over and then start over again. And then you're going to be like one of those people that start a thousand things and never finish anything. That's the doldrum stage. It's important to stick with that stage because this is the moment where you put the seed in the ground and you get it cultivated and you work at it. And you work, it's really hard and you want to quit. But if you stick with it, then, then, then here's the last stage that you go into. And, and this is a difficult one as well, but it's very valuable as well. It's called the cocoon stage. And this stage is the cycle that's just dark. It, there, there's pain and there's isolation and there's confusion. You don't know uh, the end result or success of any of it. And, and, and it's a sense of darkness, like you're in a cocoon. And you don't feel like you have a whole lot of value to contribute and, and, and you feel tired tired from the whole process has worn you out and you feel very fatigued. But in that darkness and in that isolation of the cocoon stage, that's where gestation happens. And the result of gestation is new dreams can come. Something in your life has to, be, has to die in order for something new to be born. This is the idea of um, necessary endings. That, that, that you, you go into this time where you, you put something away, you put something to death, you end it so that there is space. And you don't know what the space is going to be created for later in your life, but it's emotional space, perhaps it's mental space, spiritual, it's space on your calendar. You create space in the, the cocoon moment where things start to die, and we don't like it. But it's very important because you come out of that now with, with freshness in your mind, the newness. It's kind of like you allowed your mind to lay fallow for a season. When, when a farmer were, is, is sowing, if he does it over and over and over again, sometimes he has to stop and, and allow a field to lie fallow, which means I'm not gonna plant on it, it has to rest. God allows us to experience this cocoon, this darkness, times of isolation so that we can be ready for new dreams to come again. And so we work through these cycles of the dream stage and the progress um, stage and then the doldrum stage and cocoon until we come back to the moment where we're creative once again. And the Israelites had just come out of this hard cocoon stage of 70 years and now they're on the other side and they're beginning to dream new dreams again. And what's it gonna be like? We don't have a king, we don't have a temple. We don't have any of these things. What are we gonna create first? The prophet Ezekiel prophesied that it would be like this. He said that right now Israel is like a big valley of dry bones. And in the valley of dry bones, it's dead. It's like the cocoon and it's dark. And he says, but God is still working and he's going to bring the winds and he's going to bring all the bones back together. He's going to bring life into you, Israel. There's going to be a movement into the new stage. And when that happens, 
and you start to dream new dreams again, y'all, it's euphoric. They were so, there was a euphoria that came over them as they pictured their new life that it says that they would just break into laughing and they would break into songs of joy. They're just walking along and they would just start singing. They're so happy and filled with joy and they would just shout, you know, hallelujah. And somebody else would hear them and they'd shout hallelujah too. In exile, they were hanging up their harps and walking away, but now they can sing again. It brought worship back to them and joy back. You remember Abraham's wife, Sarah? She experienced this kind of joy when they, she heard that she was going to uh, be expecting a baby even at her old age, and she thought it was so hilarious that she just starts laughing. She goes, I'm way beyond, way, way, way beyond having a baby. I, that's funny that y'all even think that that would happen, but, but there's this joy with it as well. It was funny laughing and joyous laughing. Sure enough, she has the baby, and she's holding the baby, and she says, there is only one name that's appropriate for you, Isaac, which means laughter, that in my old age, God has brought me joy and brought me this ability to laugh. Isaac, you know, I, I think that, Isaac Baptist Church would be a good name for a church. Baptists name themselves all kinds of things. There's, you know, First Baptist, Second Baptist, Third and Fourths and Fifths, and there's Trinities and, uh, you know, Calvaries and all kinds, and, and uh, Sardis and Philadelphia. I, I think Isaac. Why hasn't anybody tried an Isaac church? I would like it. I would join it, I think. I, I've heard that John McCain said that after he got out of being in solitary confinement during his imprisonment in Vietnam, he, he said a funny thing happens when a man gets out of solitary confinement that they talk incessantly. They had no one to talk to for so long, and now they just talk. I wonder if their joy was taken away and no dreams, and now the dreams are just bursting, and they're just talking and shouting. I wonder if it was like that. Vision comes after difficulty. And when it does, it brings unbridled joy, organic joy that comes to us. Um, last week, a friend of mine was in a class at Truett Seminary with Dr. Roger Olson, and he shared with me, uh, shared with me that in class, Dr. Olson said this, that he is afraid that what is often missing the most in Baptist churches is joy. He said, I don't get it. I don't understand why people who believe that they have received life because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I don't understand how they would enter into worship with such constraints on joy that if you looked at them, you would wonder if they had any joy at all. We don't constrain joy. We unbridle it. We let it go. Y'all, I, I believe an unbridled, unconstrained joy in the Lord. I believe it. And I believe that the, that the place where it manifests is, is what Dr. Olson alluded to. And that is that when Jesus died on the cross, that's the cocoon phase. And that the whole world was dark for those three days. And that his disciples were running. And, and, and the world was falling apart. And all hope seemed lost. That was exile. And then on the other end, he raises to life on the third day. And, and at that moment, it's as if all joy broke loose. 
where, where the dreams that Jesus had talked about, about the kingdom of God, now all of those dreams are being fulfilled in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We can now be at home with God when we are once separated from God because of the resurrection. Now we can be at home with God again. What is home like? Home is a back porch swing and home is reconciliation and home is, is this place of, of community. We can be home again because our time of exile and sin are over in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus is risen and even though our world doesn't get it, our world doesn't see it, we get it, don't we? We get it, don't we? that we've been liberated from bondage, and because of that, we live a joyous life. Y'all know when the Jews did come back, there was a man named Nehemiah that went with them, and, um, and, and he goes, and he is trying to lead people to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem, and, and it was hard work, and people were coming, and they were criticizing him and saying, you can't do it, Nehemiah, you can't do it, y'all shouldn't do it, and even through all the criticism and all the difficulty and all the administrative heartaches that he had, because he is free from exile and home, the theme of Nehemiah is Nehemiah 8.10, and it says this, even though it was hard, the joy of the Lord is our strength. I've made that my life's verse. If you wonder what is your pastor's favorite verse, Nehemiah 8.10, the joy of the Lord is my strength. We are like those people who dreamed dreams. And when we did dream those dreams, our mouths were filled with laughter and we were filled with joy. I have dreams of what living in Christ can mean for my life and mean for you and mean for our church and y'all mean for our whole world. I have a vision for it. It makes me laugh, it makes me happy. I'm struck with joy when I think about all that Jesus Christ can accomplish in this world. And there is no doubt who gets the credit. Not in this text. Not this time. They're not going to miss it. There's no doubt who gets the credit. When they shouted out with joy, here's what they said. The Lord has done it. The Lord has done great things for us. Even then, everybody is recognizing that. It's unmistakable. Yahweh's fingerprints are all over this thing. There's no mistaking it. And I can hear them start to worship that through this phrase again, the Lord has done great things for us. The Lord has done great things for us. And they start to sing it. The men who had hung up their harps on the trees, they're saying to them, men, it's time. Go get your harps off the trees. Women who buried their tambourines, dig up your tambourines. Let's play them again. Here we go. The Lord has done great things for us. And we're excited about our future because of who he is. And, and, and it happened out of nothing, out of nowhere. They're in exile, and then boom, it, it just says go home, and it brought all of this. He, God did it ex nihilo. Here is a creation narrative story for you. In the same way that in Genesis chapter 1, he created the world, what's called ex nihilo, which means out of nothing, all throughout the Bible, all throughout the Bible, we see Genesis 1 come up again and come up again and come up again. God creates. God liberates. God saves out of nothing. We didn't do it. We weren't expecting it. And it just saves. 
He moves. He did it with the Israelites when they were freed from the bondage of Egypt. He did it again, bringing them out of Babylonian captivity. He did it again when he spoke to uh, Gabriel and he says, go and tell this woman Mary that unto you a child is born. Out of nothing, he tells the shepherds. Out of nothing, the incarnation comes. Genesis 1, ex nihilo, God moving. The resurrection happens, ex nihilo. God does it all the time like that. The Psalms regularly bear witness to this, the surprising gift of new life when none had been expected. The writer and the people seemed very surprised by grace. And I think the best way to end is on this idea that, that I hope, church, that grace still surprises you too. I hope that it hasn't become old hat and, and that grace hasn't become so old and wore out that, that you just expect it. Because know this, if grace has lost its ability to surprise you and fill you with real, authentic, unbridled joy, then I'm afraid that the only thing that can help you feel and know grace real again is a season of disorientation when all grace seems lost. That's the case for the psalmist and the people of God. All grace seemed lost. It seemed as if God had moved on from their life and then ex nihilo, all of a sudden, the clouds part and God shows up glorious and triumphant once again and he brings new orientation. New orientation is always ex nihilo. Grace and ex nihilo go hand in hand. And, and, and that's how Jesus defeated sin and death for us. He did it out of nowhere. And our mind then, when, when, when things happen out of nowhere, your mind is filled with a million dreams of what it can mean for you when Christ Jesus is real in your life and you did not expect it. What could it mean? Ah, oh, the dreams. Well, I guess we'll stop. What do y'all think? So, the, the dreams, the joy, I hope you got it. You've been listening to the audio sermon podcast of First Baptist Church of Marble Falls, Texas. Never miss an archive sermon by subscribing to our podcast on either SoundCloud or iTunes. And to learn more about our church or watch a video version of this and other sermons, please visit us online at fbcmf.org.